Come along with us as we explore the broad world of preservation and the work being done to preserve, interpret, and save our past in a 21st century world. From aquaculture to historic foodways to forensic modeling, we're talking weekly with experts from across the globe. This is your host, Nick Redding. Welcome to PreserveCast. Join us on this week's PreserveCast as we head back to Frontier, Indiana, where we'll talk with Michelle Evans, the domestic trades manager at Connor Prairie, one of the largest open-air history museums in the nation. Michelle will take us through the background of Connor Prairie and her experience over the past four decades on site, as well as Connor Prairie's unique use of heirloom plants within their 1,000 acres and 14 areas of interaction. All that and much more on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're excited to be talking with Michelle Evans, um, who is the domestic trades manager at Connor Prairie, which is itself one of the largest open-air history museums in the entirety of the country. Um, And we're going to get to know what all that means and the kind of work that she does there. Um, But before we get there, it'd be great to know a little bit more about you. Um, so Michelle, talk to us about what kind of was your spark moment. How did you get involved in historic preservation in the field of historic interpretation and working at museums? Where'd you grow up and how did this all come together? I was born and raised in Indiana, uh, but grew up in a family where we took a lot of those annual summer trips to museums and national parks and state parks all over the country. Uh, so I got to see a lot of interpretation and action and always loved that informal teaching. Uh, So I got a degree from Purdue uh, University uh, here in Indiana in interpretation. And at that point, thought I wanted to work in national parks, but uh, started out working in an Indiana State Park uh, for the season. And that was Spring Mill State Park, which is in southern Indiana and is a recreated Pioneer Village. So it started there and has gone on. Uh, I started at Connor Prairie a couple of years later and have been there ever since. So how long have you now been at Connor Prairie? I have been there since 1984. So coming on 40 years before too much longer. Almost 40. Yeah, I guess next year would or, or soon thereafter will be uh, 40 years. Um, so you've seen not only been at one place and been able to kind of really experience one place like that. But you've also seen a tremendous, I would imagine, change in interpretation, too. Maybe we can talk about that as well. Or or maybe you haven't. Maybe things have kind of stayed the same or you've seen some changes. Um, but for those of us who aren't familiar with Connor Prairie, let's talk a little bit about some of the background on it. Where is it? Um, and then how was it founded? What kind of story does it tell? Give people a sense of the scale of what we're talking about. Sure. Uh, it's just outside of Indianapolis on the north side of Indianapolis. Uh, it is centered on the 1823 home of William Connor, who came to the area as a fur trader trading with the Lenape and the Miami people. Uh, his first wife was Lenape. When the Lenape were forced to leave, uh, he and his wife and six children went with the tribe when they were forced to go west. Uh, He chose to stay. And three months later, marries his second wife, who's white. Now that home stayed in the family, but in the 1930s, uh, Eli Lilly of Lilly Pharmaceuticals knew the family history, uh, purchased the home to restore it. Uh, It was in bad shape at that point. 
Uh, he also brought in a few other buildings from central Indiana, uh, log cabins and a loom house and built a spring house and uh, things that were around the the house itself uh, to show that history of the Connor family. Uh, even when he still owned the property, he sometimes had wives of his employees give tours. You know, if your local ladies club or Girl Scout group wanted to see the house, you could arrange that. Uh, in the 1960s, he gave the property in trust uh, to a Quaker college here in Indiana. And then um, about 20 years ago now, uh, 25 years ago now, we've got our independence as an organization. So we have about a thousand acres. We have historic areas ranging from 1816 to currently 1863. Uh, we've got a nature preschool on site, a day camp that uh, takes advantage of our natural spaces and our spot right along the White River. And how many historic structures do you have? Oh, let's see. Uh, I don't know the exact number, but uh, we've got, I would say, close to 50. Wow. So, yeah, and the reason I asked that is when you're talking about it being one of the largest open-air museums in the country, I was trying to get that scale, but it's the 1,000 acres also sets it apart. I mean, that's a huge amount of land, um, and I imagine some of that is still under cultivation just because you have to keep it uh, actively, you know, in use. Otherwise, it's all going to turn back to forest eventually. Well, and a lot of it is forest because it is along the river and it's ravines and things. So we've got that natural space that is preserved in a county that's one of the fastest growing counties in the country. So talk about your role at Connor Prairie. I mean, I think we set the picture for the story this tells and the expanse of, from the early 19th century to the mid 19th century. What does the, the domestic trades um, manager oversee at Connor Prairie and how many people are you kind of managing through all of that? Well, I oversee foodways, gardens, and textiles, uh, and really all of our interpreter staff, which we've got uh, with our part-time staff, uh, about 60 people, uh, are touched with domestic trades one way or another, because it's the kind of thing that everybody should know. Uh, just like our daily life today, you know, we, we all know how to use the microwave and, uh, so people back then would have known how to sew on a button and how to cook on a fire. And uh, so we we have encouraged all of our staff, uh, even if it's not something they do on a regular basis, to learn those skills. Those are sort of the, I guess, the the commonplace skills or, or sort of the the basic skills of, of sort of mid-19th century or early 19th century life. Are there specific programs beyond that that I mean, I know there's probably special programs, but do you oversee the cooking and um, like what are the, the what are the different domestic trades that you would you're you're specifically responsible for? Sure. We have uh, one cooking post that we cook on every day in the Golden Eagle Inn. Um, and then we have an outside bake oven that's associated with that, which is really cool to see in operation. Uh, we cook in some of our other historic areas as well. Uh, with, in our Civil War area, we sometimes have uh, some of the soldiers cooking. And sometimes it's uh, home front cooking. And what do you do when you don't always have all the things that you're used to because the store got burned down? Uh, in our Native American space, we, we talk about the cooking that the Native Americans would have done uh, both within uh, maybe a pre-contact situation 
But by the time they got to Indiana, the Lenape, the Delaware have been uh, in contact with European Americans for 200 plus years. And how has their food waste changed because of that? Uh, we also have 10 gardens within our historic areas that I oversee, and uh, as well as the Loom House, so our textile program. So it touches a lot of different pieces. Um, and you mentioned your, you know, your, your training, your education is in um, interpretation. Where does the, it was it sort of a hands-on learning that, I mean, to oversee, you know, looms and baking and all those sorts of things, is it sort of a trial by fire and experimental archaeology sort of to, to learn these skills? Or did you have sort of, um, you know, uh, sort of master uh, tradespeople in, in this field sort of teaching you uh, as you kind of grew into the position? Well, I definitely had people both uh, at home and at work teaching me. You know, I grew up gardening uh, in a family of gardeners. I grew up sewing. Uh, we had a milk cow when I was growing up. So that was something that was familiar. But when I got to Connor Prairie, it's like, you're going to teach me how to spin. You're going to teach me how to weave on the loom. Uh, you're going to teach me how to cook on the hearth and pay me for all that. So that was a great opportunity. And I think that's something that we can, you know, so I had great people teaching me uh, on both sides, both at home and at work uh, and lots of people that I've learned from. And you've been there 40 years. So presumably you've, you've mastered a lot of these things. I'm sure you can fire up the, the outdoor bread oven and, and things like that. Are there things though, that you kind of like, do you try and keep it fresh? Are there things that you're learning right now that you're like, I don't know how this works, or I'm trying to figure this aspect out. Is there how do you kind of keep yourself fresh in the interpretation um, at a place like that? Is, there, is it sort of always a learning experience? I think most of us that, that work there are definitely lifelong learners. So there's always something new to learn, uh, whether it's a new embroidery technique. Uh, I'm mending a quilt right now that uh, I've had to look up some things to make sure I'm doing it right. Uh, but there's always new things to learn. And I think new aspects of that uh, with the gardens, we're always looking for varieties that are closer and closer to what they would have had historically. And so there's always things that we're researching and looking and learning about. And speaking of new, before we take a break, what, talk to us about, has, and we kind of mentioned this at the beginning, has the, the style of interpretation or the way you approach interpretation changed significantly since you started there? Um, has it always, you know, is it, and I don't think I asked this question, first person, third person, how do you sort of approach interpretation and has that changed? When I first started, we had a very clear definition between first person and third person in some of our spaces. Uh, Prairie Town, which is 1836, was solid first person and no dropping out of character. Uh, some of our other spaces are a blend, so we may have... Uh, a third person interpreter in that space to help explain things so that, you know, if a, a guest asks a question that somebody feels like they can't answer in first person, they can say, oh, that person in the blue shirt down the road, go talk to them. They can answer that question. Uh, but I think we've become uh, a little more open to sometimes stepping out of first person, uh, particularly uh, so that we can answer questions for guests so that they're not walking away um, with maybe an idea of something different than what we want to get across with a point in history. 
Interesting. And is it difficult to teach people first person? I don't think so. We've got a lot of people who uh, come with a with an acting background, and of course, that first person is different than acting. Uh, but if they're kind of used to improvisation, then that really helps. And we've got some interpreters that love it, and some that say, you know, I don't want to ever be in costume. Just let me do the other things that we do. Uh, so we've got spaces for both kinds of folks. Let's take a quick break here. Come back. I'd love to talk about the gardens and the heirloom um, varieties and how people at home listening can maybe kind of do some of that and what they can learn from Connor Prairie um, from afar. Um, and we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP is an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast today. We're excited to be chatting with Michelle Evans, who is the Domestic Trades Manager at Connor Prairie, which is one of the largest open-air history museums in the entire nation, um, at over a 1,000 acres, dozens of historic structures. Um, before we left, we were talking about sort of changing nature of interpretation and, and how you approach interpretation um, and how you also continue to learn. Um, and one of the things that uh, we wanted to talk about a little bit are sort of the gardens. Um, you mentioned in passing how many there are. Talk to us about the heirloom plants, how you keep them, um, you know, growing, what you do with them, what happens when they're all, you know, how do you harvest them and what, where do people eat these things? Um, uh, I'm curious about that aspect of it and the research that goes into it. Sure. We've got 10 gardens throughout our historic areas. So we're ranging from 1816 and mostly Lenape and Miami crops, uh, which some we've been uh, able to find online and find sources for uh, through different seed companies. Uh, one of our Lenape corns, uh, we actually got directly from a tribal member. And uh, we continue to maintain that at Connor Prairie and uh, preserve seed. Uh, in our 1836 area, you know, we... Sometimes you can look in a, a, a historic seed catalog or in a newspaper ad and find out what they were growing. Uh, sometimes we're looking at cookbooks or letters and diaries and journals to see what people were growing and eating and trying to get as close as we can to varieties that were available back then. So we order a lot of our seeds from a lot of small seed companies. Uh, sometimes it's organizations like Seed Savers uh, out in Iowa. Um, or Southern Exposure Seed Exchange down in uh, Virginia. and But sometimes it's little mom and pop seed companies that have got these seeds that we're looking for. Uh, sometimes we've just got a description of a variety and we get as close as we can until we can find something that um, gets there. But if we look at heirloom seeds over the years, uh, from 
there was a study that showed that from 1900 to 1980, about 80% of those varieties that were listed in 1900 seed catalogs are gone. So some of those varieties we'll never be able to find because they're they're extinct. But we and do the do best you, we can. Do you find that the interest in this is growing? I mean, I feel like 20 years ago, you know, heirloom variety things being grown in your backyard was, was sort of an anomaly. And now I feel like there's a lot more interest in it. Is that a growing area of interest in terms of visitor expectation and questions and, you know, spending more time kind of trying to learn about that? Do you do programming just around the gardening and heirloom um, plants? We do. We just finished up our uh, heirloom seed sale that we do every year. And uh, we we didn't quite sell out this year, but we'll sell out the staff. Uh, but we have hordes of people that come on Friday evening to get the varieties that they want. Uh, they know that if they don't show up Friday evening, they may not get uh, the exact tomato that they're looking for. Uh, and we keep a running list. I Sometimes things become more available locally uh, in regular nurseries. And I may drop that, but they say, you know, then I have somebody come up and say, well, you know, where's the Cherokee purple? Because you had it in the past. I said, well, you can go to the greenhouse down the road and get it. But I like to buy it here. Yeah. Uh, so we keep, we keep those on hand. Uh, but I think there's I definitely with COVID, we saw an increase in people gardening. Uh, that first year of COVID with people worrying about uh, food supplies and sometimes the grocery stores being not as full as we expected. Uh, there was a huge increase in the number of people that were gardening. And a lot of those people were interested in heirlooms. I think people find that some of those varieties Tastes like the tomatoes that grandpa and grandma grew rather than the ones you get from the grocery store. And they appreciate that. And I'm curious, you know, you, you've had the, the benefit of being in this position for, you know, several decades now. And that COVID moment where there was this like, you know, this moment where we realized we needed to garden or we, we were concerned about food supply, things like that. Is that one of the first times that you saw sort of this looking back and, and sort of thinking like there's some sustainability to the past and perhaps there's a lot of really good lessons here? Have you seen that before? Was that I mean, I feel like there's now this sort of recognition that, wow, some of the things that we did back then, perhaps we should return to is a much more sustainable way of living. Now, some of the things weren't sustainable at all, the way that we treated soil and stuff like that. But was that was there a moment of relevance there that you were able to capture or kind of seize on? Well, I think we've always seen some of that with guests at Connor Prairie, that appreciation of the past. And uh, whether it's just the nostalgia or the wanting to, to learn some of those skills, we see both. Uh, we do some heirloom cooking classes. Uh, we have an annual hearthside dinner program that happens in the winter every year that is always booked out. Uh, people get a chance to learn to cook on the hearth and sit down with a group of friends or sometimes with a group of people that have become friends over the evening uh, to eat that meal that they cook together. Uh, what's next for you? What are you working on? Anything new uh, that visitors this season to Connor Prairie can expect to see or something that you're working on for the future? Well, we've uh, we've had a rainy spring, so we're, we're still working on getting our gardens planted. Uh, one of the exciting things in the Loom House this year is uh, we're reproducing one of the coverlets that the Connors owned. 
we have coverlet, overshot coverlets in our collection that belong to the Connor family. Uh, one has been produced multiple times, but the one we're working on now, two of our textile staff literally sat and counted threads to draft out the pattern. And it's on the loom right now and is uh, going to make a beautiful coverlet. So it's exciting to see that come along. That's really cool. And we'll make sure that there are links in the show notes to Connor Prairie so that people going on uh, one of those summer vacations that uh, Michelle talked about going on uh, can stop and, and see Connor Prairie. It's an amazing place. Um, before we go, uh, and we'll let you off easy, obviously Connor Prairie is one of your most favorite historic places, but beyond Connor Prairie, do you have another favorite historic place uh, that holds a special place in your heart? Uh, one that I will stop at if I'm through the area every time is the Frontier Culture Museum mm-hmm. in Stanton, Virginia. Uh, another open air living history museum uh, that highlights the settlers that settled in the Shenandoah Valley. And that um, not only connects to my family history, because some of my family came through that area, but also so many Hoosiers came through that area and have that Scotch, Irish and German and English background. So it's fun to see that every time I go through. Yeah, that's an amazing site. It's a good answer. Um, And been a lot of fun talking with you. We're looking forward to... uh seeing all the good things that Connor Prairie is doing. And we'll make sure that there are links in the show notes so people can uh, learn a little bit more about uh, this amazing site uh, and uh, all the amazing work you've been doing out there. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to preservecast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening, and keep on preserving.